The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. In many ways, this represents my worst nightmare that I'm called upon to preach and literally no one shows up. I wish you could hear how quiet the laughter is in here right now. Just pray with me real quick as we, as we open up the word. Dear Heavenly Father, I'd ask this morning that I would hide behind your word and just speak to us through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was in college at the time. It was 1992, and it was in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. The Atlanta Braves baseball team was facing the Pittsburgh Pirates in Game 7 of the National League Championship Series. So the winner of this game would go on to win the World Series or go on to play in the World Series. My brother and I were given tickets to this game and we were more than thrilled to go. My brother sat on my left and to my right was a total stranger. I'd never seen this person before and he and I exchanged maybe a handful of words throughout the entire contest. Eight innings came and went and the Braves couldn't score a single run. They entered the bottom of the ninth inning down two to nothing. So if they were going to win this series, they would have to score two runs to tie and three runs to win. It seemed like a tall order. Those eight innings were the most disappointing eight innings I'd ever witnessed, but the ninth inning. To this day, the ninth inning might be the best baseball I've ever seen in my entire life. The score was two to nothing entering the bottom of the ninth. Now fast forward to the last play of the game. There were two outs, the score was two to one. With runners on second and third, a good base hit wins the game. The other thing you should know is that the runner on second base was a guy by the name of Sid Bream. Sid Bream was the first baseman and people joked at this point in his career he was held together by coat hangers and duct tape. So if we were gonna win this game, Sid, unarguably the slowest player on the team was gonna have to score from second base. The count was two balls and a strike, the pitch, and a hit. A line drive to left field, one run came in, and here comes Sid going as fast as his body would allow, and then some. The throw was a dart from left field. Sid Bream in a cloud of dust slides into home. The throw was on target, exactly on target, but a fraction of a second too late. The radio announcer, his name was Skip Carey, his call would be played over and over again in the city for years to come. Braves win, Braves win, Braves win, Braves win. The stadium and everyone in it went bananas. I've never seen 60,000 people so joyfully unhinged. The stranger to my right, the one that I exchanged maybe a dozen words with all game long, he and I were locked in a full embrace jumping up and down together, and it went on for a while. A total stranger. Now, ever since that day, I've I've wondered, and I want you to think about this with me for a moment, why? Why did this happen? Why, after eight innings of disappointment and and one moment of something remarkable, was my first impulse to, to give a bear hug to the stranger on my right? And beyond that, why was it his impulse to do the the same to me? You see, You and I were made this way. When we see something you love or experience something so spectacular or witness something so dramatically wonderful, your first impulse is to share it with somebody. Why is that? 
God made us to share our delight with each other. Our delight is made complete when expressed in concert with other people. We're cast in the image of our creator who exists in a holy community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You and I were made to exist in the context of community. We're in the book of Galatians and we're nearing its close. We're into the last chapter now and the first half of chapter six is about being in community about being in relationships with each other. Now, I want you to know I realize the slightly ironic nature to all this. Here we are about to talk about the absolute necessity of community in a time where all of us have gone into self-quarantine and and isolation. But don't you see, right now, right now more than ever, as as already our pastors have, have, uh, have, have spoken of, we need the loving care of the community of Christ more than ever. This is when we need to be more vigilant than ever to to maintain community. But how do we maintain community in a time when our civil leaders are telling us to stay home? Well, we're gonna do what we do every week. We're gonna do what we do every Sunday. We're gonna go to God's word. We're gonna go to God's word and seek the guidance from the living active word of God. You see, the fact that we've suspended normal programming might've come as a surprise to many of us. A week ago, I don't know that any of us would have guessed that this is what we'd be doing right now. But God, none of this comes as a surprise to him. The sovereign God of the universe still sits on his throne and he knew we'd be here on the week that we'd arrived at the sixth chapter of Galatians with a sermon entitled, a a sermon given a name months ago, mind you, Carry Each Other. That's the name of the sermon today. That was named months ago, Carry Each Other each other. Christ Presbyterian Church, in a time of tremendous uncertainty, we didn't have to pivot outside of our sermon series that we've been in since October of last year. This is the passage that God wanted us to look at today. The one that has in it, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You and I might be caught off guard, but God not in the least. For the most of the book of Galatians at this point, which is, which is a letter to the church, Paul has been answering the question about what makes someone justified, that is, what makes someone right before God. And you've heard us say this over and over again as a response to that question, Jesus Christ plus nothing else. That's what makes a person justified. And then Paul tells us a little bit about the process after you're justified. He moves into telling us about sanctification. You, for the rest of your life, are going through a process whereby you're being made to be like Christ. Yes, it's a slow process, which is why Paul likened it to fruit, the fruit of the spirit. These are behaviors that will start to gradually and inevitably be produced in you. As a believer that has been justified by the work of Christ, you are now to keep in step with the spirit and be in pursuit of these behaviors out of a deep sense of gratitude and love for what Christ has done in us. As Paul is telling us about the fruit of the Spirit, think about this. The first one, the first one is love. That's an outward expression set in the context of interacting with someone else. In fact, you could argue that all of the traits of the fruit of the Spirit are that way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are all behaviors that are set in the context of interacting with others, being in community. C.S. Lewis says, it's not out of compliment that people who are in love keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. Their delight is incomplete until it's expressed. 
meaning it's the way that God has wired us. He made us to share our delight with each other. Our delight is made complete when expressed amongst each other. Now, here's the thing. All too often when we think about community, we tend to think about the wonderful side of being in community. And, and that certainly is one of the benefits. When we, when we tell you about, for example, joining a, a connect group here at Christ Presbyterian, we put up an image that shows a group of people in a studio apartment with lots of windows and lots of light coming into the room, all sitting around a guy playing a guitar. And that's wonderful. You see an image like that and you think, I want to be in community too. But think about the context of what it looks like to exercise the traits of the fruit of the Spirit, like patience or kindness, or self-control, or gentleness. Verse 1 of the sixth chapter of Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You see, it's not just delight that needs to be expressed with one another. We have to look at the other side of the coin, too. As we open up the sixth chapter of Galatians, Paul is giving us another context that makes community not just a nice thing to add on to our faith, but an absolute necessity. You and I, we need Christian community not only to, to celebrate the spectacular, but we need community arguably much more to bear each other's burdens. Did you know what our biggest burden is? Do you know what the biggest problem facing humanity is by far and away? Our biggest problem is what every other problem stems from, and that is the problem of sin. So Paul is telling us, here's how you deal with the biggest problem amongst yourself you'll have to face. Here's how you deal with a brother who's been caught in sin. So if this is how we're to handle our biggest problem, how can it inform us how we handle every other problem that we'll ever face? How does, this, how does this passage inform us on how we handle a pandemic or a natural disaster like a tornado? When I was a child, it was common knowledge between my brother and me that if we had some bad news to break to my parents, it was a far better path to deal with my father instead of my mother. You don't want to mess with my mother. She was, she was a tough cookie and she comes from a long line of tough cookies. My dad, he was a bit of a softie. My mother was the disciplinarian and my dad was a fountain of grace. And whenever my dad would have to discipline us, he would, he would cry just as much as we would cry. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Do you know that line? I hated that line and I hate the fact that I've had to use that line as a parent. But whenever my father said that, we believed him. Between my mom and my dad, we got a full dose of grace and truth. You see, each one of us leans towards one of those poles. What kind of person are you? Are you more of a, a softy or more of a disciplinarian? What was Jesus? Was he more of a grace guy or more of a truth guy? In John chapter one, verse 14, it tells us, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He was both. In Jesus, we see the perfect balance of grace and truth. What do we need right now? What does the world need right now? Do we need grace or do we need truth? We desperately need both. 
In the 11th chapter of John, we read about Jesus and his encounters with Martha and Mary. Their brother Lazarus had just passed away. Martha went out to meet Jesus while Mary stayed behind in the house. And when Martha greets Jesus, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus replies with, your brother will rise again. And in a terse manner, Martha says, yes, yes, I know Jesus. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Then Jesus responds in an almost academic manner, full of truth. Here's what you need to know, Martha. Here's the thing that you're missing, Martha. Verse 25 of John 11. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? Do you? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Jesus, full of truth. What happened next? I I love that John gives us this detail. Martha goes to tell her sister Mary that Jesus is here and he's calling for her. So Mary goes out to meet Jesus. And what does Mary say to Jesus? Exactly the same thing, word for word, as Martha. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly the same thing that Martha said. This sort of thing happens to me all the time in our house. One of my kids will come up to me and ask me something like, dad, can we go out for dinner today? And I'll say, no, we're eating here tonight. And then a few minutes later, my other son will come up to me, dad, can we go out for dinner tonight? And seeing that I just answered the very question just moments before, I'll become exasperated. No, I just, I just answered that question. Mary says the same thing to Jesus that her sister Martha says to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, but instead of becoming exasperated, instead of saying the very same thing he said to her sister, I I just answered this question. He said, where have you laid him? And then he wept. When he saw her weeping and he saw the others weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled And he wept. Jesus full of grace. In Jesus, we see the perfect balance of grace and truth, knowing exactly the response that Martha needed and knowing exactly the response that Mary needed. And they were quite different. You and I, well, we're not so good at it. We're usually favor one pole or the other. We're usually usually either on the side of grace or more on the side of truth. But Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 tells us this, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we're not there yet. We're not people who who do well speaking the truth in love, but we're being made to be like him. We're being made to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. But in the meantime, what? The very next verse, verse 16 of Ephesians 4. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how do we get that full expression of grace and truth? It's not gonna come to us by being alone. It's probably not gonna come come to us through any one person. It's going to come to us in the church body, in the context of community within the body of Christ. That's the fullest expression of grace and truth you're ever going to see until we're made complete at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is telling us, as you live in the context of community, as you live shoulder to shoulder with one another, and you're dealing with a brother who's caught in sin, do it gently. Restore him with grace and truth. And then he tells us, you who are spiritual do this. 
a week ago, when I thought there was going to be uh, a lot of people here, I thought about asking for a show of hands. Raise your hand if you would place yourself in the category of you who are spiritual. I thought that might get awkward, but now I suppose I can ask that. You can raise your hands now. But it's all very different now. You who are spiritual, who is that? You who are spiritual. I think what we might have a tendency to do is read this verse and think, ah, spiritual people should be about the business of restoring. So who is that? Who falls into that category? We tend to think that, well, there are, are levels to Christianity. There's, there's your baby Christian, and then after that, maybe you have the, the novice Christian, and then maybe the semi-professional Christian, and then, and then after that, those people, those people are the real, real spiritual ones. Those are the people you always call upon when it's time to say grace at the meal. That's not a job for a novice Christian. That's, that's for the really spiritual people, Right? I'm not suggesting that there aren't levels of maturity and understanding in the Christian walk, but what I am suggesting is this. You who are spiritual might not be referring to that. In chapter five of Galatians, so this is just a chapter right before the one we're in now. We're hot on the heels of Paul telling us to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. And he just told us about the fruit of the Spirit. That is the behaviors that begin to grow in all believers. This is what we're to do now. These are the marks of all Christians that all Christians should be in pursuit of. So you and I, as believers, as those marked by the Spirit, he's not referring to an elite group of Christians here. He's speaking to Christians. If you follow the desires of the Spirit, this falls into your purview, you who are spiritual. The restoring of one who has been caught in sin is the responsibility of anyone who tries to live a Christian life at all. If you're a believer, you're part of the body. You're in this community. So how do we address this with the fullest measure of grace and truth? How do we address this problem of sin with the fullest portion of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, I believe this is why Paul put it, write this instruction right here where it is. In the midst of instruction on how to live as a community, as the body of Christ. And this is the exercise of community. Paul goes on to say, you who are spiritual should restore him. When Paul uses the word restore here, it's a very specific word that he's using that means in the Greek, it's it's to set a dislocated joint or a dislocated bone back into place. A dislocated bone is something that, that belongs in the body, but it's not in the right place. This is what sin is. Sin usually stems from something good that's made to be the ultimate. All sin begins by taking something that in and of itself is good and you make it the ultimate. You make it your savior. You make it the thing that you absolutely must have. Consider the purpose behind the writing of the book of Galatians. Paul wrote it and he was mad when he wrote it. Why? Because the teachers were doing this very thing. They were using something good of all things, the law of God, and making it to be the ultimate thing. It's our job as the body of Christ, as a community of believers, to gently set the person back in order. So again, if this is how Paul tells us to deal with sin, our biggest problem. How does it inform the way we deal with every other problem? I'll bet we can use the same methodology. What we need right now is a community of people, a community full of grace and truth, a community that holds within itself the fullest expression of the fruit of the Spirit we'll ever see this side of heaven, mobilized to be the hands and feet of Christ, about the business of restoration. How do I connect these dots? Look where Paul goes from here. 
This is verse two and it tells us. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's interesting where Paul has this in his letter. He tells us to bear one another's burdens right after he's talking about restoring someone who's caught in sin. I have to believe this placement isn't a coincidence. Part of restoring someone who's caught in sin means bearing the burden of it. So it's not just his sin, it's not just her sin, it becomes our sin. But here, Paul is not only talking about sin, he's talking about any burden, including sin. Sin weighs us down, but to do so, uh, weighs us down, uh, but to do so, the effects of sin, the, the, the effects of, of, of living in a fallen world create a, a burden. This is sin, this is illness, this is loss, this is grief. You know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm getting old. So the more, uh, I, the older I get, the more I'm trying to be mindful of doing all the things regularly that I should have been doing my whole life regularly, like eating well and exercising. I've been running for a while now. I try and run between three and four miles a few times a week, and I've, I've been practicing this, this, uh, this duty for several years, but it's only really been since I've been in my 40s, I'm in my late 40s now, that I decided to, I need to do regular strength training too, not just running, but using weights. And when I first took on this task, there was one instance where I took a look at the bench press. The bench press is the apparatus where you lie down on your back and you lift the weight up perpendicular to the body. So I loaded it with the, the, the lift bar full of what I thought I could handle. Yeah, I know I can handle that. I know I could in college. Got on my back and I lift the weight off my back and I lifted it a couple times and, and I think it was on my third time when suddenly I'm frozen. I'm stuck. I can't, can't get it to go any higher. It's a helpless feeling when something like that is bearing down on you and you're pushing it. And where are you gonna go with it? Where are you gonna go with it? What do I do now? It might have pinned me down permanently the bench if not for the fact that a kind gentleman observed me in my struggle and, and helped pull it off of me. He, he used one hand, <laughs> he used one hand to lift it up and he looked as if me to say, silly child, what are you doing? I didn't care, I was just grateful that he was there and, and, and noticed. This is yet another reason why Christian community is so important. It would be so easy for any one of us who's dealing with a burden of any kind to seclude ourselves. And in fact, this is very, very common. I can wrestle with this on my own. Or we can say, I've given my burdens to, 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 to Jesus, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all my cares on him because he cares for me. Yes, that's certainly true. He does bear all, all of our burdens. But one of the ways Jesus bears those burdens is through the community of believers, the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul is not one to mince words. As we've seen in the book of Galatians, his first letter to the church at Corinth wasn't a pat on the back either. He uses very strong language and it was, to, it was a rebuke to the church that was engaged in all kinds of behavior, all kinds of unbecoming behavior of the church. And what we read about in his second letter to the Corinthians is that when he sent the first letter to the church, he was weighted down by the burden of it. He says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And again, in verse eight, he says this about his first letter. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
So he's carrying this burden over sending this letter filled with, a, with, with tough love to the church. And how will they receive this letter? I know this is gonna hurt, but it needs to be said. How did the Lord ease the apostles' burden? It wasn't through private prayer. It wasn't through waiting and waiting upon the Lord. But it was this in verse six. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. How did the Lord comfort Paul's burden? Through his friend Titus. Through the companionship of a friend and through the good report that he brought with him. I want you to keep the mental image of the kind gentleman who lifted the weight off of me. What did he do? He took the weight on himself. This is what Titus did for Paul. He lifted the weight off of him. So, so how do we do this? How, how do we be a community in a time where many of us are, are heading into self-quarantine and isolation? Again, now more than ever is when we need the loving care of the community of Christ. How do we maintain community when our civil leaders are telling us it might just be best to stay home? Who can you reach out to today? Who can you call? Who from among your community has, has to self-quarantine or isolate, whether you agree for the, with their reasoning for it or not? How can you bear their burden with them? The gentleman who lifted the weight off of me, I feel certain it was nothing for him. He could have done this all day long, right? His perception of the load that I was, buried, that I was bearing played no part in his action. He simply lightened my load. How can you lighten your brother's load? How can you lighten your neighbor's load? Who do you know that's elderly? You've heard our pastors talk about this already. Who do you know that has a compromised immune system? Do they have a way to get their medicine without leaving the house? Do they have a way to get their groceries? How can I responsibly help you? Do you know a single parent who works now and has to figure out a way and what to do with their child during school hours once school resumes around this area or anywhere else in the country or around the world? How do children who, whose parents both work, how can you bear their burden? It's easier for families to self-quarantine. Do you know someone who's single? How can you bear the burden with them? A lot of schools are, out, are about to go virtual classroom setup. Can you open your home to a student that, that doesn't have reliable internet? What can you do to bear their burden? Will your income be mostly unaffected by the pandemic? How can you bear the burden of someone who's losing work and income? Please understand what I'm saying here. I'm not advocating for recklessness. There are, these are all things you can do carefully, responsibly, and deliberately. You see, when Paul says bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, you see what, what that means? Do you see what he's hearkening to? In Matthew 22 and, and uh, 36 and 37, he, he, uh, he's speaking with an expert in the law and this expert in the law asks Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus, of all the things in the law, tell me, tell me what the most important thing is. What's, what's the thing that matters more than all of them? And he said to this, he says this in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You see, the lawyer asked for one command and Jesus is giving him two. Why? Because the second commandment is like the first, he says. The second commandment is an expression of the first. The second command is the first with an actionable item. And what's that command? You shall love your neighbor as yourself.
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is, what, this is what Paul is recalling. Bearing your neighbor's burden, this is the law of Christ fulfilled. This is your work. This is your job. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? His answer, love God, love people. Bear one another's burdens. We're in a season right now where there's plenty of opportunity for it. And it's gonna go on for a while. Church, this is your moment to rise up. But wait, Paul said this just a couple of verses later in verse five, for each will have to bear his own load. Paul just told us to bear one another's burdens and now he's telling us that each will have to bury his own load, which is it? This is really interesting. The Greek word that Paul is using for burdens means a heavy weight. And the word that he's using in verse five for load is a word that we might describe as a backpack, a personal backpack. So what Paul is saying here is that we bear one another's burdens because they're too heavy for someone to bear on their own. But at the same time, there is one personal burden that we all carry around on our own. We all carry around a burden of sin that we'll have to give an account for one day. And insofar as that burden is concerned, we can try and carry it ourselves. And if we do, ultimately it will crush us. But listen to this, Isaiah 53, five. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. He took your burden. He took that load off your back and he put it on his. And he was crushed for you. And so you, without that burden, how does that change you? Do you see what we do when we bear one another's burdens? As people who believe in the work that Jesus did on our behalf, our character is being made to be like his. So when we ease the burden of our, of our neighbor, do you see what's going on? You're walking in the footsteps of Christ. You're being conformed to his likeness. We do these things not to earn points with God. Let's bring this full circle around in our study of Galatians. You don't do these things to earn favor with God. This, this is what Paul is telling us throughout the book. Your favor is set. Your burden is lifted. Jesus earned all the favor you'll ever need. So, so as we ask you to do these things, we're not suggesting you do these things to earn favor with God, no. You do these things because of what you've been given, because the tremendous riches you have in Christ. Do you realize how blessed we are? With that knowledge from a place of deep, deep gratitude, we act. We empty ourselves. Why? Because it's what Christ did. This is the image into which we're being made. We're being made to be like him who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he made himself a servant. Yes, today we can't be the church gathered, not like we're used to, but we are the church scattered. Today we are the church scattered. We're still a community. We are now more than ever the hands and feet of Christ who have been given a task, be a servant, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. God, give us the power to do this. Please pray with me. Our Father, your word tells us that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Your spirit in us now allow us and empower us to do just that so we may actively 
be the hands and feet of Christ as we bear one another's burdens. Teach us through this. Make us like your son through this. Allow us to take comfort in your sovereign hands and do your will through us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.